out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. As I often say, bringing you the finest in indie pop. Well, this week it's a bit of a special because I was going through the archives and came across this interview that I did with John Otway quite a few years ago now when he was promoting a film. And I, I do believe it was being shown in Norwich. I know, that was a rather dramatic pause. I was just trying to work out. It was probably around 2013. Anyway, this is the interview. I think you'll like it. I did. This is John. This is me. What more do you want in life? Take it away, John. Tell us what is coming up, because you've got a film premiere and you're coming to Norwich in the next couple of weeks, aren't you, or next week? Yes, next week, yes. Um, Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure, Otway the Movie. Right. And um, and sort of, have you, are you excited, you know, are you surprised by all this um, latest, latest kind of for all about your career? Yes, no, it's, it's brilliant. What we did was we made the career for um, my sixth year, uh, made the film for my sixtieth birthday present because we'd had a campaign ten years before for my fiftieth birthday to have a top ten hit record. Yes, and that worked remarkably well. We got into the top ten with it and onto top of the pops, and loads of people kept saying, you know, well, what are you going to do for your sixtieth? So I came up with the idea. It wasn't very difficult. Otway the movie, and we'd have a movie for the sixtieth birthday. So what we did was. We booked the Odeon Leicester Square, yeah. right, biggest theatre cinema in the country, for the premiere. Yep. And sold tickets for the premiere and used the ticket money to make the movie. Oh, and, um, and it worked really well. We actually, uh, the end of the movie is actually the, the premiere with everybody arriving on the red carpet. So when we did the premiere, we actually had to film the end of the film. Right. Um, and edit it up while the audience were watching the rest of the movie and flip it on the end. Oh, that's very clever. So it, did, it all came together really well. Yeah, and it came together really well. And then we thought, well, the next thing to do with the movie, obviously, is take it to Cannes. So we took it to Cannes Film Festival. And um, then we managed to organise a pretty good um, cinema release over here. We've booked into, booked into about 50 or so independent cinemas around the country. Fantastic. And what's really nice is quite a few of them are selling out, but quite often, as has happened in Norwich, we're getting um, upgraded from screen two to screen one as screen two sells out. Oh, very exciting. So people, people have sort of come to, um, come to pay their respects, so to speak. But, yeah, and that's but, brilliant but, because uh, these Hollywood blockbusters keep getting demoted from screen one to screen two in order to make room for me. <laughs> no and the other spectacular thing that happens when, when you get upgraded yes. is it actually happens that your head does get bigger. Yes, it's very <laughs> exciting. So look, what does the movie consist of? Um, uh, it's um, a lot of it is archive footage. I've um, I've been very well, very lucky, but I, it's sort of self-engineered. I've always got people to follow me around with cameras whenever I've thought I was doing something clever. Right. And so we had um, a, a lot of archive footage, and um, uh, some of it back dating back to '78. Um, ATV did a documentary which they shot on um, shot on film. Sure. Which which looks, you know, all that stuff looks absolutely wonderful. Well, it must be. Was it quite strange sort of looking back and seeing yourself decades ago sort of just, just beginning your rock and roll journey? Um, well, I'd been watching that over and over again <laughs> <laughs> over the years. It was a, a slightly tougher on my daughter because um, 
I got her to do a lot of the um, lot of the editing work, a lot of the offline edit- editing work, and she had to sit through hours and hours and hours of embarrassing footage of her dad. Right. Yes. I, uh, yes. I guess your children always they have a different take on their father or mother, whoever um, has been in the public limelight. Because you know, looking back, you started in '72 with your big single called Misty Mountain, Stroke Gypsy, and then obviously the one thing that everybody remembers was was your performance in '77, which was the Really Free with Wild Willie Barrett. How did that all sort of come together? Because that's that's obviously when I first came across across you. Yeah, we um we sort of started building up, but that was sort of like the sort of punk punk era and the pub rock circuit. And me and Willie got an act together that started to started to work quite well. And then we got uh, to book to do a spot on the old Great Whistle Test. Right, with Whisper and Bob Harris. That's right. And um, something spectacular happened. I, I went to leap on top of um, Wild Willie's amplifier. And um, I slipped, and one foot went one side of the amplifier, the other foot the other side. And I landed on the most delicate parts of my anatomy in front of five and a half million people. Right. And it was instantaneous success, literally overnight success. I mean, that went out on television a few days before we'd done a gig with 30 or 40 people. Day after that went on television, um, there was a queue of like three or 400 waiting to, you know, to see me do it again. Like, because I guess in, as in, you know, 77 being one of those iconic dates or years in, in sort of music, a bit like 67, the summer of love, and, and then sort of almost the explosion of punk. So that quality, the sound and, and the general roughness of that production, because obviously you had Emerson, Lake and Palmer, yes, Genesis with this huge kind of overblown stuff, and then you came on back to basics, basically. So it must have fitted in with the punk ethos very well. Oh, I did, yes. I mean, um, you know, Sounding awful and looking shocking, sort of, sort of like suddenly became fashionable, and that was what I did best. Right. And, and 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 sort of as with most things, you don't really have a plan of your, you know, especially as an artist, of where you're going to go to next. So after that, has was it just to sort of make it up as you go along? Oh no, it was it was a 25 year because um, um, we had because after the whistle test, um, we had the single really free. Um, and that went into the charts pretty much straight after the, the whistle test performance. And the next 25 years really was a struggle to get a follow-up. Yeah, I, mean, well, I was desperate for more hits, but they just wouldn't coming. You yeah. know, they just weren't coming. And quite a few people said that that was probably down to the fact that the records weren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Tiny, is it Tiny Tim, who was the ukulele guy from the 60s? I mean, there was a sort of, the problem with novelty records is that they are kind of novelty. And I guess a lot of people thought, you know, Really Free was quite a novelty record. I think it was sort of, it sort of has sort of quite, um, quite a sort of punk edge to it. Um, and um, that sort of style of punk went out of fashion, um, you know, pretty quickly. Yes. Um and I mean, there's a, there's, there are plenty of other sort of like one-hit wonders. Um, well, I was just... a lot of them. A lot of them just give up, but we just kept, you know, the live show had always remained popular, and I'd always managed sort of like get a reasonably good crowd to come, you know, watch the shows. So for the next twenty-five years, um, you know, it was like, you know, 150 shows a year. Right, just uh, keeping it going, building yeah. up your cult audience. And it was going, I mean, the really nice thing about having a live show that works, having a live audience, is that they're, they're nowhere near as fickle as a record-buying audience. Right. And so they sort of stuck with us. So when we did things like, um, you know, book the Alba Hall for, um, for a concert or, uh, you know, ha- have a campaign to have a hit, they, they were all there and well behind us. 
Yeah, because obviously, because I sort of looking back and sort of coming across you in various kind of Glastonbury festivals, I mean, you teamed up as well with Attila the Stockbroker, who was the the punk poet of the time. I mean, that that must have been you must have met a lot of people because because I always sort of put you in the same category as people like Martin Newell and um, I suppose Vivian Stanshaw and and sort of the Bonzo Doodog band. I mean, you sort of go into that category a bit, don't you? Yeah, there's not there's not actually that many people that combine um, combine your sort of like comedy. And music well i suppose vivian stanshaw did because of his kind of you know sort of sir henry rowlands and stuff and they yeah, were, and, the Linus and um yeah there's a um, and i miss those on the comedy side now you've got bill bailey that sort of like um does that sort of thing quite quite well and what's and on the on the sort of fan front? Have you have you been surprised with anybody who's sort of come up to you, sort of from the rock or the sort of film world, and said, you know, I love all your stuff. I think that you know, this is. Um, I suppose I sort of like um, consider my sort of myself to be a micro star. Right. I mean, it's not a big. It's not a big shoot star. But there's just enough stardom in to allow yourself to call you, 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 you know, you, to name yourself one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 you know, it, um, it twinkles just. <laughs> yes, this, this is true. Because the other thing that sort of has appeared on our radar is kind of on, on BBC4 on a Friday night. They, they often have a rock kind of documentary or two. And they, there was two that's sort of appeared recently, one on Wilco Johnson and Dr. Feelgood. And the other one was on Graham Parker as well, who was one of those people. It ran the same punk period, I guess. Yeah. And, and you know, suddenly you realise that actually, my God, he did all this kind of work. And then it just didn't sell. And then he just kind of... And now he's sort of a one-man band, sort of, you know, pulling his you know amp and guitar out of the car, playing a gig in front of 100 or 200 people. And he's kind of happy doing it, and he's reformed the rumours. Um, your your sort of career has a slightly similar quality to, to those guys as yes, well. Yes, apart from mine went down, downhill a lot quicker than his did. <laughs> 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 I mean, that's one hit. And then, um, and, and then the complete collapse and straight onto the road with the... Um, 300 people a night in the van. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> on that first album you did with Wild Willie Barrett, it was produced by one Pete Townsend. So obviously at that time there must have been an element of like, you know, this you know this was the late 70s, well, not late, mid-70s. So there, there must have been an aspect of, you know, having Pete producing your album, there must have been a feeling from the record company that, you know, you are going to be the next big thing. Yeah, I mean, Pete, um, what was Pete Townsend that picked up on us? Um, one of the things to remember is that Willie was an astound and is, I mean, an astoundingly good musician. I mean, one of the best musicians I've ever worked with. I mean, um, an absolutely beautiful player. And um, Pete Townsend picked up on that. I mean, I, I, I think my sort of wailing vocals he wasn't as keen on. Um, but Willie's playing, he certainly picked up on. Right. And um, we sort of pressed off um, a few copies of a single which John Peel played, and uh, Pete Townsend offered to produce, um, produce it properly. Yeah, absolutely. Which was great. So we, when we came to do that first album, we had sort of four or five tracks produced by Pete Townsend to, you know, get us started. Absolutely. And when you were sort of growing up, before you sort of hit your, your first singles and albums, what were the sort of influences at the time? You know, like, what were you listening to during, the say, the 60s and early 70s? Um, uh, pretty much Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, and Van Morrison, I think. Right. So you didn't you didn't sort of creep into the world of psychedelic rock. It was much more sort of singer song. I mean, uh, a bit, but I mean, in terms of the people who were actually um, influencing the way I was sort of um, the way I wanted to write. I mean, in terms of the songwriting. Um, in, I mean, I, in terms of 
you know, the more theatrical things. Um, Tom Jones and Liberace, I, I was really quite fond of both of those. They both had sort of like TV series on at the time, and I, I just quite like the uh, spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I suppose it's a bit Vegas, isn't it, really? I mean, have, do you keep in touch with people like, you know, Wild Willie Barrett at all? Oh, yeah, me and Willie do a tour. So, like, every couple of years, we sort of go and do a sort of a 2038 tour. Right. And did you see, um, and has he seen your movie yet? No, he hasn't. He was supposed to come to the premiere, but he booked a gig in on the same night. <laughs> yeah. He's great in the movie. We've got some really wonderful archive stuff of, um, of Willie slagging me off. <laughs> <laughs> but did you go your separate ways with the usual musical differences, or did you just think, no, let's just, let's just walk away now? Um, oh, we kept splitting. I mean, we kept splitting up. It was, um, you know, one of, one of those sort of relationships that... I think really what we, we both sort of thought of each other as sort of a useful tool to get where we wanted to. So as soon as we got a bit of success, we split up, split up and try and do our, get our solo careers together. Was it, were you a bit like the, the um, Elizabeth Taylor and um, Tim Burton, not Tim Burton, yeah, yeah, yeah. Burton of Richard, the, of the, Burton. Richard Burton of the rock world? Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit like that. We, I can remember we had a T-shirt at the time: reunion split, reunion split, with the reunion. You know. Was it? Was it? Was it just on on sort of like musical differences, or the fact that you just couldn't stand each other? Um, oh, um, no, it was just uh, the fact that we weren't very nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, um, the last well, a couple of tours ago, when we came up with a name for the um, a name for the tour, the incompatible Otway and Barrett tour. <laughs> <laughs> and I rang up Willie and said, I've got this great name for the tour, the incompatible way about it tour. And then we had an argument about whether we were compatible or not. <laughs> oh, excellent. I hope it all goes well. And I hope your 60s have been as good as your previous decades. I'm, I'm sure yeah, it's great. And um, I mean, if you're listening, come to them to see the movie. It got four stars in The Guardian. Oh, brilliant. Pacific Rim got two. Okay, so this movie is twice as good. And there you go. You can't argue with that. That was me in conversation with John Otway, I do believe, in around 2013. A big thank you to John for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great week.